Hi, this is Think Queerly, a thought leadership podcast that shares an empowering perspective on queer lives. I'm your host, Aaron Steele, a mind map mastery and ideation coach. On the show, I explore LGBTQ plus social change, history, political issues with other thought leaders and creatives who are making a difference in the lives of queer people and our common humanity. Now today, I'd like to welcome to the show Tim McCaskill, a longtime Toronto writer, activist, and educator. Welcome, Tim. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Uh, you were a collective member of the Body Politic. Uh, you were chair of the Public Action Committee Committee of the Right to Privacy Committee. You are a founding member of AIDS Action Now. Uh, you participated in Queers Against Israeli Apartheid after 2010. You've published a couple of books, the first one being Race to Equity, Disrupting Educational Inequality, uh, A History of the Struggle for Equity in Toronto Public Schools. And what we're going to be chatting about today is your book, Queer Progress, From Homophobia to Homonationalism, which was published in 2016. I'm going to give you some air so you can maybe <laughs> tell me a little bit more about what I've just briefly touched on there. I, mean, I grew up in a very small town, Beaverton, mm-hmm. Ontario, mm-hmm. Uh, in the 50s and 60s. And so you can imagine that uh, one's major goal in life was not to be exposed as mm-hmm. queer not to be exposed even to oneself. Um, And so I didn't come out until I was 23 and in the city and, you know, left small town Ontario. And that growing up didn't really prepare me for, what would you call it, a village life or ghetto life or that kind of thing. But I had been involved because it was a time of, great turmoil in the anti-Vietnam War movement and different kinds of uh, social movements. And so when I came out in 1974, I came out into the gay movement. Uh, That was sort of my home. Uh, It was much more, it was much less frightening to come to a kind of community newspaper like the Body Politic than it was to a bar. I didn't even know what a bath was. So uh, I guess I got my start there in the body politic, and that brought me into the center of the uh, of the early uh, gay rights movement. And like once you are involved, my life just kept unfolding from one from one struggle from one group to another. So uh, yeah, yeah it's sort of a slippery slope, I guess. Once you start with the body politic, there's no escaping. <laughs> well, you 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 write in the book. It seems like when you literally migrated from small town Ontario to the big city. And my goodness, how much Toronto has changed since, you know, you first landed in in 74. Uh, But it was literally like you got off the bus and then you found yourself uh, being handed a leaflet and then suddenly getting engaged with some sort of a demonstration, having your kind of first sexual experience all within a week. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't quite that fast. Yeah. I'd actually, I'd been in Toronto for a while, and then, <clears throat> I want to get into the, the nitty-gritty of it, I was uh, madly in love with this young man who mm. was straight and completely oblivious and, you know, trauma <laughs> drama, all that kind of nonsense. Followed him to South America, lived in South America for a couple of years, and came back to Canada in 74. And at that point, 
I was no longer able to deceive myself about what was going on. Right? It was like, uh, I think I'm one of these, right? And so I started reading the body politic uh, very much on the sly, taking it to a very big park uh, with, with a running track in the middle where I would sit in the center of the running track and I could tell if anybody was going to be within a quarter of a mile so I could hide the paper. Wow. And in that paper, I saw the ad for the uh, uh, lesbian, uh, gay pride, gay pride march uh, for August 17th, 1974. And I thought, because mm-hmm. I still hadn't contacted anybody, right? I'd still been like just me in the paper trying to figure out what this, what this uh, cross that I was going to have to bear was. And I saw this ad and thought, well, you know, maybe this is how I can actually meet somebody or talk to somebody, or maybe this is because I couldn't imagine going to a bar. It was just too frightening. Um, And so I went to that march uh, because I felt comfortable in protest marches, been there, done that. And there at the march, of course, it was Pride in 1974 was about 75 people maybe. And I was recognized as a new face in the crowd and picked up and taken home and had sex with and given lots of more literature to read and told them about what I was reading, right? So uh, that that was my entry, right? So it wasn't just off the bus, but uh, yeah. pretty close, I guess. Yeah. Well, we're going to jump back and forth in time, but let's come to how where the book ends. So Queer Progress from Homophobia to Homonationalism was published in 2016, but it concludes historically with your timeline. It, it, it starts with about, I think, 1974 is when you, uh, once you get past the introduction and the general terminology that you're introducing. But it ends with World Pride, which happened in Toronto in 2014. So I've got a few questions about this date because we're eight years past. A lot has happened. A substantial amount has changed in you know, in Ontario, in, in Canada, at the political level, municipally in Toronto, uh, all kinds of crazy shenanigans at Pride Toronto and other organizations. And what's happening in the world today with like the Ukraine and Russia. And, you know, the, we could go in so many different directions, but we will try and keep it contained. And if we speak to certain things, what wasn't included in the final copy that I have in my hands, I understand that there was a substantial amount and was it more, just more periphery or was there something that you wished had have been included that just couldn't be because the publisher said cut? No, in fact, well, I mean, <laughs> in fact, it was uh, the obvious, uh, the, sorry, yeah. the opposite. I felt, oh, this book is too long. Nobody's going to be able to read it. Um, and so I kept going to the editor and saying, where can we cut? How can I like, trim this down? And he was no help at all. He, no, he was a good editor. Like he caught all these things and like, but I, you know, I can't complain about him as, as an editor, but he said, I really like this. I don't think you should get rid of that. And so finally I was taking pieces out, right? Uh, more of the earlier pieces. Okay. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's my first editor for the first book was like, you just described it was like this has to go this has to go this has to go that one was way 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 too long right i had no, right, right, I had right. no experience writing a book before but um this one no i got in just about everything that i wanted to get in the the irony of it was that the book ends with saying that with this 
with the success of gay rights uh, and the kind of embrace of gay rights by the state at the same time that social inequalities have actually become much more acute than they were in the 70s, what we see is a kind of a fragmentation of community because we're no longer in the same boat. And so I guess my regret was that as this thing was in the presses, the Black Lives Matter intervention at Pride happened, right? Which was exactly the kind of thing that I was talking about, right? People right. now just have, they don't agree on some very fundamental things. Uh-huh. Is the police and Pride a testament to how far we've come? Or is it something that is obnoxious and uh, uh, anxiety-inducing in much of the community, right? Uh, like. Yeah really different life experiences feed into that. So I guess my regret about what's not in the book was I maybe I should have waited another two years until, right. <laughs> until 2016, because that was, that was the, um, that was kind of a real turning point. But on the other hand, now I can claim to be very prescient because I actually uh, suggested that exactly that kind of thing was going to happen. I'm interested to know how you determined the structure and the perspective of the book, because it, while it's a big book and it takes time to get through and it's, it's dense in the sense of, you know, taking all the material. And then as, as you're thinking through what you're reading and you're, there's a layering, like you, you have managed to take all of this archival information that you accumulated and then detailing the history. And it isn't, it isn't necessarily, it's sort of linear, but some of the topics have to go back and have to then jump forward. It was very hard to put the book down. Like the, it was a, a page turner in some ways because I, fa- I found the history so interesting. But you also took very complex topics and I think tried to make it as easy to understand as you could. Yeah, so the structure, I mean, you're right that it's linear. And so I, I mean, history books need a story i find right i mean unless you're a real history nerd like myself who like you know (laughs) loves that kind of thing you really do need a narrative and so part of the structure is that i base it on my own involvement which allows me to get into kind of this tastes and smells and sights and you know that kind of stuff that kind of makes it more vivid Mm -hmm. in a way that if it was just archival work uh, it wouldn't so that gives it a kind of a structure and a kind of an arc Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing uh, that I think is important is that if you notice, I mean, it's in, it's divided in, in different blocks, but each section is not much more than a page or two long. So it's in these kind of bite-sized pieces. You can like mm-hmm. read one of those sections and kind of get it and then put it down if you want or go on to the next section. And mm-hmm. um, the it was the... I don't know if you've ever read, oh, and I'm blanking on the author's name, Memories of Fire Trilogy, which is a history of Latin America, which is done in these like almost one or two paragraph stories. Mm-hmm. That start from uh, in Spanish conquest up until, uh, up until the present. And I, I really liked that form uh, mm-hmm. it, uh, because it, it made the thing kind of easy to read and accessible and vivid and yet at the same time, all those little pieces added up to produce a kind of collage that uh, took you through an arc of history. Uh, so that, there's kind of two competing pieces of structure. One is that larger arc of my own involvement, and second is breaking these things down into bits and pieces so that people who you know, don't want to page after page are reading like three pages before they go to bed 
have a beginning, have an end, and uh, and have like something that's going to stick in their memory. Well, I just wrote down what I I knew, but I didn't actually put into words to 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 say to you till now is that. Uh, while this isn't an autobiography, this is a first-person historical um, piece of history. So instead of a historian deciding that this is their niche, they love this area of history, they want to go and do all the research and present their perspective, um, it's it's you who happened <laughs> in the storyline, in the narrative. And I think that's also what makes it very readable and interesting because many of the people who you speak of, you knew personally. So you you give a life to a lot of voices that are no longer with us as a, as a strong example. Yeah, that's, you know, it's, that's the advantage of having, being lucky enough to be there, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's the same with the other book too, uh, The uh, Race to Equity. It's about t- working for 20 years in different kinds of equity capacities in the Toronto Board of Education and the, the triumphs and the frustrations of that kind of work. Uh, right. So my, my, I guess my training as a writer came through the body politic and it was in journalism and uh, mm-hmm. that kind of making sure you've got a perspective in journalism is something that I think is really important for, for good German journalism. I mean, you can do your little news shorts, which are sort of abstract and float above the real world. Right. Mm. But, uh, but if you want to do a longer piece, you know, you've got to, you've got to be there somehow. Right. Uh, well, let's talk about the title. Um, Yasbir Poor's concept of homo nationalism that uh, you speak to towards the end of the book. And you introduce the idea um, I had to read that section a couple times just to let it let it let it sink in, and then I followed up by reading uh, Yasbir's uh, follow up essay dealing with some criticisms. But how would you make how would you explain homo nationalism so that somebody looking at this book can understand what it means, and maybe even how it's changed in the last eight years since the book was published? Yeah, yeah it's a it's a poor came up with the term to try to describe what was happening in the United States where a group that had been always on the outs, Mm. uh, so excluded from the nation, right? Because the nation was heterosexual and we're not. Uh, How, when through that struggle for rights and acceptance, suddenly becomes embraced by the nation, but also deployed by the nation, used by the nation for its own purpose. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, the United States who, you know, bombs and <laughs> invades and does all this bad stuff in the world, right, can still talk about itself as this beacon of individual rights because it has abandoned its or has for a period anyway abandoned its uh attempt to kind of crush and exclude uh queer people from mm-hmm. the nation now mm-hmm. we're seeing in the states now in fact that uh with a whole bunch of things being rolled back uh, specifically around trans uh, trans rights books burnings from libraries all of this kind of stuff that you know homo nationalism may be something that we look back fondly upon right when they didn't persecute us um, but I think what Poor was pointing out was how when you get into bed with the nation, then the nation can begin to use you in ways that may be not what you had in mind, 
right. or maybe not be in your best interest, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, someone said to me, you know, what would be the most important thing that the state could do in terms of gay, you know, gay people today? And I said, put running water in all the indigenous reserves across the country. That would materially help more gay people than all the damn apologies and monuments and all of this kind of stuff, which are basically glorifying, you know, particular political party position on us rather than grasping with who we are. And, uh, you know, we, we, we are everywhere in a certain way, but only, only certain of us have been embraced by the state as kind of the proper gays, the married gays, or all of this kind of stuff, you know, um, because we have come to resemble that uh, heterosexual model that they uh, once promoted about what a, a citizen should be. Right. Uh, they've now accepted some of us into that, but others who are still too queer or you know not white enough or too poor or you know, for a whole bunch of reasons, you know, are still excluded and still have to face, you know, the wrong end of a police baton and all of that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. So homonationalism, on the one hand, nobody would say, well, we should need to go back to when the state persecuted us all. No, mm-hmm. I don't think they're saying that. There are real advantages of being, uh, being um, accepted as kind of a respectable citizen, I guess. But on the other hand, that that respect needs to extend to all members of our community, many of whom certainly don't feel it and uh, still feel the state as this oppressive institution rather than one that is somehow supporting them. Right. That's very helpful. And what what you see or what one reads as you go through the book is to see this progress from early gay then becoming called gay and lesbian liberation versus assimilation. And then I guess assimilation isn't quite the same as homonationalism as you've described. It's when then the state says, okay, we're going to use you now to our benefit. So it's liberation, assimilation, homonationalism, yeah, I guess would be the trajectory. Yeah. yeah, we could have never imagined homonationalism in those days, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, let's talk about queer. Um, you, I'm going to quote something you wrote to, in, in the conclusion, and that, you know, the word queer and the idea queer is, is wonderful and yet challenging at the same time. So you write, and I quote, queer is also rife with contradictions. It is an anti-identity and simultaneously rejects and fetishizes identity. It's it so values the role of the outsider that rather than seeing less radical, more normative lesbians and gay men as a constituency to be organized or won over, it more often uses them as a foil to highlight its own political righteousness. Everyone wants to be a radical activist, but no one wants to organize. Queer represents a rejection of the status quo, but it has been so far unable to imagine a solution to it, and its politics tend to be one of gestures rather than organizing towards a concrete goal. I kind of, I had a bit of a brain explosion with that um, because I, I love what the queer represents and I tend to, I have used in my own languaging about rejecting the status quo, but then I recognize the fallacy of that statement because it's all fine, but yes, what is the alternative? And we've just talked about this movement from liberation to assimilation to homonationalism and 
the original intention, I guess, of, of early liberation was to change the structure of society. And of course, the structure of society has definitively changed since that time. But I I suppose this is an ongoing thing always, regardless of one's identity, queer, straight, or otherwise. Yeah, yeah. Well, the structure of society has changed in terms of its toleration of what it previously wouldn't tolerate. But the actual Mm. structure of society hasn't changed that much at all, or if it's changed, it's probably changed to a much more unequal society than we had in 74. I mean, Mm -hmm. if you look at the the gap between rich and poor, we're back to where we were in the, you know, pre-depression era of like the, you know, the Gilded Age of the, which is now we're now seeing coming back on uh, Netflix and things like that. It's becoming, you know, an era that we had forgotten about that now is uh, back in the public eye. And so society has changed, but not in the direction of greater, greater fairness or greater equality. Um, You know, we're still, we're still spending kind of more on uh, in Toronto police than in any other social service right Mm -hmm. you know uh, we still spend millions of dollars in uh in arms to go blow up other countries and sell and and make money uh we have a situation where um some groups who are extraordinarily rich have a much undue um, influence on politics and political directions Uh, Mm -hmm. So it's, it's this kind of combination of, on the one hand, increasing tolerance for certain kinds of difference, but on the other hand, greater difference, which is kind of the central contradiction. I think that uh, I think that we're facing. Um, I, I started the book because I, I was working with Queers Against Israeli Apartheid, and yeah. they were trying to throw us out of the Pride Parade, and the argument that was made was that pride was all about sexuality and being outrageous and about celebrating sex and yada, yada, yada. Um, but not about politics. And I had this kind of like one of these, like what the fuck just happened there moments, right? Where I thought like in the body politic in the early days, it was talk about sex or depictions of sex that brought the police to the door that got us arrested and fingerprinted and <laughs> charged yeah. and dragged through the court. <clears throat> Politics didn't matter. You could say anything you wanted in terms of politics. Mm. Like nobody cared, right? But sex was terrible. And suddenly, 40 years later, I'm in an organization in Pride and they're saying, you can't talk about politics, but sex is what we have to talk about. Yeah. And like, what just happened there? Like, (laughs) so how did this increasing tolerance for sex lead to a decreasing tolerance for actual? Talk about political talk about how society is put together and what's wrong with it. Right. right. And it's like a, it's a conundrum. And it was, it was in order to try to myself figure out what process had led to that ironic conclusion that I started writing the book because I did not start the book with like a thesis that I was going to elucidate here. It was like, I don't know how this happened. Right. Yeah. You know, I've got some ideas, but really I need to go back over this history that like when you're in it is like this buzzing, booming confusion, right? You just like live through to the next day. Uh, yeah. 
and like try to figure out how did that happen? Like what was going on? Like what are these little signs that that we all missed or misinterpreted or you know like like the proverbial frogs in boiling water or like in warm water heating up? I didn't notice that was happening until all of yeah. a sudden we're cooked. Too late. There's some interesting observations you made there. I was thinking of the personal as political, but not so much that statement as you know, 70s and the 80s when talking about sex would get you arrested or the you know, police would come and seize all the materials like they did for and held them for years and years from, you know, the body politic. But as the personal becomes more public and the decriminalization of, um, you know, uh, gay sex, um, greater freedoms about being able to express one's sex and sexuality, um, that's also a trend towards greater individualism. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if then politics being a structure and trying to organize needs to somehow be that much more controlled the more individual voices almost like this this you know it's like a balancing act you you have these mutually arising polarities politics is is a complex organism mm-hmm. um you know, and we certainly have greater access to some of our politicians than we ever used to. Uh, there's so much more transparency. You, 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 you can't really lie as easily as a politician, for example, because people are going to catch you. People are going to check your Twitter feed and such and such. Going back to the queer quote, quote I wrote down: "Difference breeds difference breeds difference." So we had gay, then we had gay and lesbian, then we had gay by lesbian, then we added trans. And then now we have this bigger initialism. And then you have waves of acceptance, which is the rest of society saying, okay, this is cool. What's this? Oh, no, no, no. Acceptance goes way back down. And then acceptance starts coming back up. And it's these trends Mm -hmm. and waves of acceptance and waves of tolerance for individual freedoms and liberties. Mm Yes, there are those waves, and like any wave, like big movements cause waves, like big Mm -hmm. shifts in things cause tsunamis, for example. But we were also kind of creating those waves in in certain ways, and so there's a lot of actual work that went went on with it. I I think of it maybe the metaphor would be – you know, you've got a wave and you've got a surfboard and you can surf the wave or you can just like let it crash over you, right? And so yeah. we were surfing. We There was a change happening in society uh, as the world became more globalized and particular old ruling circles just kind of passed away, right? The kind of the kind of people that ran Canada in the fifties and sixties, they're all Mm -hmm. gone now. Right. And so Mm -hmm. newer generations with uh, different ideas uh, did emerge. But on the other hand, we helped create those ideas. Right. So there's this, I I think what we're seeing now is if you want to look back at the States and the, you know, the book burnings and the uh, anti-trans legislation and all that kind of stuff, that we rode that wave to a certain extent and and made some real progress. But now that wave, that bigger wave seems to be receding. And like, what is that going to mean for us? Right. Because Mm -hmm. suddenly the, the energy that was propelling us forward that we were riding and taking advantage of, and certainly twisting and turning and doing all of those things, right. Because surfing is, you know, 
you've got to play it by ear. Um, That, but when there's no wave, suddenly that, you know, you can twist and turn all you want. You're stranded on the beach. It's not, you're Mm -hmm. not going to move. Right. So, I mean, the other thing I think is in this book is to try to get people to recognize that it's not like we made this progress on a unchanging society. Society changed in very fundamental ways, and some of those actually gave us energy and, and, and pushed us forward. Other things pulled us back. Um, and where does that leave us now? And the, and the real danger of homonationalism is that if you have become dependent on the state, what happens if the state changes its mind? And that happens all the time. Right. I mean, I think back to if you look at those early um, uh, issues of the body politic, there's like a community page and there's like 70 or 80 groups. These are all volunteer groups that are running and doing a a myriad of different things. Right. Mm -hmm. If you look at the the topography of the gay community in Toronto now, what you've got are some aid service organizations Mm -hmm. and some charities and almost everything is dependent on government funding. Yeah. Like what happens if suddenly they decide that we're no longer <laughs> invited into the into the party, right? We're yeah. really, really vulnerable in a way that we weren't <laughs> in those days when we depended on our own resources. And yeah. if you, you think back, like the body politic, maybe, I think they got we got a couple of little grants of a couple of thousand dollars, but basically we had to depend on our own resources. The Right to Privacy Committee was a completely volunteer organization, never had any staff, never had an office. It was all all volunteer. AIDS Action Now was the same. Mm-hmm. Um, like the groups that I've been organized in, organizing with are those groups that uh, are not dependent on the state. Now, that's not to say that it's not a good thing. I mean, if you bring a social, serv- a social service, I mean, obviously, you need an office, you need staff, you need all of those kinds of things, and you're going to have to depend on um, funding from somewhere that will probably go beyond what the capacity is to be able to raise within the community. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I'm not saying that, oh, all these people have sold out or anything like that. Uh, I'm saying you're, you're doing a, a job, they're getting, they're getting kind of funding, but they're also always then vulnerable to power in a right. way that, uh, that we weren't, yeah. and so the, I think that's the real danger of homonationalism, that uh, that you're dependent now in a way that we we weren't dependent in the early days. Well, that speaks to, and this is where you know having the the one on one conversation is so important. And somebody who's lived this, when I read it, um, and I guess just uh, to to disclose, um, you know, I was 18 in 1984. Um, I remember when I was 16 working at a Dominion store in Mississauga, where I lived, uh, seeing, I believe it was a time cover, like, you know, gay cancer. Uh, that was, that was, that was the first thing I saw that introduced me to, to that. And then at 19, making my foray into my first gay bar, which was kind of a, uh, a trick invitation by somebody who had a crush on me at a restaurant that I was working on, which is like, great. Cause now I finally found the place to go. Um, and then shortly thereafter I moved to Ottawa and I went to Carleton university, which I believe you did as well, but it wasn't until Carleton university when I got involved in some politics, but there was a different kind of energy. Well, 
but I should backtrack a little bit. There was a different kind of desperation um, in in some of the political movements, especially around HIV/AIDS, because you were fighting for your own mortality. A different kind of drive and determination. Um, also, when politicians and other individuals were like, "Just gays doesn't matter," and they're scourge if they die from this disease. That's just a few less. So how do you how do you maybe look back upon that kind of energy and drive and need and demand um, and like mortal necessity for change compared to perhaps I know I'm putting you on the spot here some some current things that are happening uh, that might be important to you for example that maybe you're uh, somehow involved this or or, or or advice with respect to that kind of organizing in the past to now? Um, once again, I think it depends a lot on location. Mm. I mean, if you're a, a young black queer kid, um, your relationships with the police are still pretty visceral and immediate, right? And you're going to want, you know, it's not something that that is uh, kind of somehow less um, less urgent than what we felt um, in the early days. It was urgent because you know we had no rights. Uh, then it was urgent because the police were kind of beating the shit out of, out of us and arresting us and trying to close down our places. Then it became urgent because we were dying. Yeah. Um, so there was that kind of urgency. The urgency now. For many people who are relatively comfortable, like I say, so myself as well, right, as I'm kind of an older white guy who you know lived through a period where people actually got to have pensions after they stopped working, right, which is not the case, not the case for young people today, right? I mean, I'm you know relatively, I'm relatively comfortable. I'm not rich, but I don't, uh, you know, I don't worry about. Uh, pinching pennies or anything like that. And, mm-hmm. you know, I live in the West end of Toronto. It's a largely immigrant area, but I don't face any homophobia kind of in the streets or anything like that. Uh, in fact, our next door neighbors, who is an Indian family, had a, have a student visiting from India and she's studying um, video production at a community college and decided that, my partner and I would be a great subject to talk about the LGBTQ community. Right? Yeah. And so they came over and like <clears throat> did this little video of us. Right. And so it's like, not like I feel kind of real danger around being, being queer uh, can be in, in my life now. Right. Mm-hmm. That's not true for a lot of other people who, yeah. Uh, you know, if you're in the shelter system, being queer can still be really, really a problem. If you're young, it can still be really a problem. If you're if you're not white, it can still be really a problem. Um, so I, th- I think that's one of the things that this greater disparity does. It means that the urgency is not distributed equally. Right. And so whereas before you could expect almost everybody in the community to understand what was going on and like, you know, they would make this decision whether I get deeper into the closet and hide or whether I come out and try to fight it. I mean, that's always a decision. But uh, now for, you know, now they don't even have to make that decision, right? Because they just don't see the world. They don't feel the world. 
in in the same way. Uh, and so you've got to really be able to listen to what other people are saying, but that's never really as doesn't have as much impact as when it's actually happening to you, right? I, I think. Yeah. I mean, I, I like it was interesting what you talked about in terms of individualism, because I think that that certainly has happened. I mean, we we were all about building community and forming, like we lived in communes, right? You know, we shared space, we organized politically. We, it was, you know, without, um, without hierarchies in our organizations, all of this kind of thing. And we are in a much more individual world and certain technological things have also changed the kinds of contacts we have with each other. So I mean, I, a thought experiment that I throw out when I'm doing talks to young people often is that we understand that when the police raided the baths in 81, there was this huge uh, reaction and thousands of people came out into the streets and organizing and money was given to pay for lawyers and it was like a, a big, big fight. What would happen today if the government closed down Grinder and Scruff? Because they have the capacity to do that and we know in all sorts of, right now they're all closed down in Russia, right? Just yeah. Would people react in the same way? And they did that. Right. Have in, we developed uh, those kinds of connections that we did in in the baths, yeah. or have those things just like we're now these individual uh, yeah. items that you know don't don't relate to each other so much as community as we do to like the occasional sex partner. I think that's the, one of the big key issues: the the difference in the dynamic of community and how many people come together versus how many people stay connected by text or virtual or less frequent meetups. And then there are less physical meeting up spaces as there used to be. And, you know, going back to like the eighties, no internet and 2022, we have a saturation of the availability to get information. The trouble is, is the information real fake, uh, deep fake Whereas in the 80s, it would have been like, how do you get the news? Mm-hmm. Like you know, reading in Queer Progress and knowing this story from others is, you know, Gerald Hannon called you, woke you up at like two o'clock in the morning saying, you know, you've got to get down to the office or whatever. They've raided the bathhouses. And then you started getting on the phone. And it was like that. Uh, what is that system called where you would call six people? Or six people great. would call six people. And that was the, yeah. yeah. And then postering because that, you know. That was the only way to get the word out there. And there is probably a different kind of energy dynamic when the urgency is because there's less information to be spread in that moment. It's a singular thing. Bathhouses were raided, organized. It was like, what was the situation? What is the plan? Now it's like, okay, I'll go to TikTok, I'll go to Instagram, I'll go read CBC News, or I'll watch. And then you get so caught up in the doom scrolling yeah. that you don't do a damn thing. Yeah. 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 It's, um, I don't know. I mean, I, when I ask this youth this question, people think about it. I mean, maybe there would be a huge reaction if they closed down Brinder and Scruff. I mean, maybe people would be just like outraged. Uh, but mm-hmm. on the other hand, I don't know. I really don't know the answer to that question, but I think it's worthwhile thinking about, um, you know, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Uh, or even if they clo- try to close down the baths again, I was helping out with the organizing of the, um, the bathhouse union at, um, at, uh, steamworks. Um, cause I know people on the staff there 
Mm-hmm. And it, it was interesting when we were um, kind of trying to get community support for the unionization of staff that a lot of people said, well, we shouldn't talk about that too publicly because, you know, the baths are still illegal and maybe the government would close them down again. It was like, what do you mean the baths are baths aren't illegal, right? So people really have lost touch with uh, a lot of institutions, I think. And there's this notion that the baths are like this sketchy place that's like always on the border of the law. And like, no, that's not the case. These are quite quite legitimate uh, businesses that uh, play an important role in the community. But that isn't, it's like, I guess everybody thinks that everything that's not marriage in a white picket fence is now somehow sketchy. And um, what people were actually suggesting was that old structure or that old strategy of like, how do you deal with oppression while you keep your head down Mm -hmm. in the closet, right? We don't want to talk about the baths because maybe the government would notice them Um, when, you know, that's, that's not the case. So there's a real disjuncture, I think, between that maybe has, has developed because of, the fact that we're supposed to be accepted and so everything that isn't quite squeaky clean is now considered somehow dangerous and freaky. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. It's like, it's really, it's a complex situation that, uh, you know, I'm still, we're going to need to write a new book and figure out what the hell is going on now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd love to talk about it when you're right. Cause it, yeah, yeah, yeah it's, yeah, yeah. you know, at least into some other uh, questions I've thought of around um, what, you might want or what you hope the lessons, the political lessons or, or just general, not general, but like the deeper understanding from the, the, the particular histories that you shared. So there's the aspect of liberalism and now neoliberalism. And you're very critical of that in the book. That's very much, I think, part of like the politics um, that you stand for and how we've and you've described this right at the beginning with homo nationalism, where there was probably a greater safe social safety net in the seventies and the eighties. And that's most definitely changed. So how has that affected LGBTQ lives and where do we draw the line that it's about everyone? Mm-hmm. Well, the, I mean, the lack of, when I'm talking to young youngins again, I often point out that when I went to university, it was basically free. <clears throat> and kids that are in university now, when I tell them that, their kind of eyes bug out of their head. Like, what do you mean it's free? Right? It's like you mean I got fifty thousand dollars in debt from university? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, you'd, you'd you'd apply. You know, you'd give out your list of universities, and you'd apply. And at the same thing, you'd apply out for you'd apply for a student loan and a student grant. Mm-hmm. And you know, my. My father owned a small business in a small town, so we went poor by any means. But I think my grant was bigger than my loan and covered most of my expenses for that uh, first year because they were really eager in getting as many people into the university system as possible. Mm-hmm. So I mean, what what that meant was if you looked at the body politic, the people in the body politic, almost all of us were people who were the first in our family's history ever to go on to post uh, secondary education. So we were kind of pretty mobile in a way that our families, who were largely working class families, had never been in history before. And that gave us particular kind of skills, but also skills that we would be able to use in this 
liberation struggle, right? Because we wanted to change society to make sure there was more of this rather than rather than less. What, what neoliberalism does is to accentuate class differences. It, it, it increases disparity between rich and poor. It produces a society where there is enormous wealth in a few hands and the middle class, the so-called middle class, if you, uh, just to, just, if you, people should look at um, David Holchansky's work called Three Cities in Toronto, if you haven't seen that. There's a series of maps that go from 1970 to 2005, and they divide Toronto into three cities. One, people who are um, below, below average income, around the average income, and above the average income. And in 1970, which is the first map, almost all the city is the yellow color, which is the, the middle group, right, mm -hmm. around the average income. And, yeah, there's poor people and there's a few rich people. If you look at the 2005 uh, census, we now have the rich people and the poor people, and there's this little, little kind of skin of this middle group sort of or, or in certain parts of Toronto. Mm -hmm. What that means is that those kinds of divisions in the community, if you're, if you're, if you're poor, if you're in that group that's towards the bottom, you're probably not going to be, or you're going to have a difficult time being able to afford to go to university. You're probably going to be in precarious employment. Um, you know, your life was going to be a continual struggle in a way that it wasn't for us, right? Because when I, you know, it was a, there was a struggle around rights and stuff, but I could always get a job. You know, I could always, I, I never, I never had to feel that I was, you know, desperate for food or anything. Yeah. And that's not the case for more and more and more people now. And that, of course, affects the texture of community. And once again, those kind of divisions in, in the community. Yeah. Um, this is the accomplishment of neoliberalism. It has it has concentrated wealth in fewer and fewer hands, and when wealth is concentrated in fewer and fewer hands, power is concentrated in fewer and fewer hands. And so, democracy—we're supposed to live in democracy—is predicated on the fact that you know people are equal, everybody's got to vote, all of that kind of stuff. But when in the real world people are demonstratively not equal. And democracy begins to make less sense too, and so then you get your Trumps coming, you know, on uh, coming on side, right? And you see different kinds of authoritarian movements beginning to get more and more traction because, you know, if this so-called democracy isn't working for a large number of us, then people begin to cast around for other things. And we were in touch with kind of liberation movements. That was the other thing that we were looking at in the early days. But those have pretty well fallen away. And so now the other things are crazy right-wing people uh, who uh, you know, are going for more authoritarian society, a less tolerant society, um, who are just flailing around in many cases, right? Uh, and un unconcerned with who they might be hitting when they flail, right? Because, you know, notions of you know, back to the past when America was white or Canada was white and all of these kinds of, you know, white supremacy, all of these kinds of things are re are invigorated by a society that is less and less equal because people are casting around for anything 
that may be better from a real than a reality that they're beginning to find more and more intolerable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think the you know that's what's... scary for us, right? Because you know, there's like a living memory of us being a, like a major target, and uh, yeah. that certainly you, can happen you, again. You mentioned this in a couple places in the book that the the challenge is perception. So a, a lot of the right wing groups are general, not all of them. It's like across society, but a lot of right wing individuals are economically disenfranchised mm-hmm. or a lower education. And so then they tend to get swept up by somebody who knows how to, you know, manipulate and is smart enough to, you know, create this ideological group of right wing individuals. But we saw a trend where LGBTQ people didn't have rights and then they started to get rights. And then then we started to see the upper echelon, generally gay men uh, at a particular period in history that maybe then had better paying jobs. Uh, You talk about this with certain lawyers and other people coming in and then volunteering their time at AIDS Action Now. So then you saw this idea and somewhat correct, somewhat incorrect perception that, oh, well, now queer people have more privilege than the rest of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And so today in 2022, that's not 100% correct. Certainly some do, but those of us who do, and I'm not one of those people with huge financial privilege, is still the small upper echelon, but we can easily be grouped together as a target of those people who are right wing because they're still trying to find the reason or right. the groups that have made their lives so difficult. It's a big question. I mean, other than education, where do we start with that? I mean, I think that we have to offer a real alternative and that's what we're not doing. That's what mm-hmm. we seem to be incapable of doing, of saying that it's not a person's skin color or sexual identity that, classifies where they fall in a social hierarchy. Um, It's other factors such as class, right? Mm -hmm. That make uh, coincide with particular kinds of identities in certain ways, um, but uh, are not exactly the same thing. You know, you can say, well, most of the, most of the people that are really rich and powerful are white. And that's true, but not Mm -hmm. all. Right, not all at all, right? So race, race can sit as a kind of uh, indicator of your social position and class, but it doesn't explain everything, right? There are some, there are very rich people, um, you know, who are black and Asian and all of those kinds of things. Um, so it's the we need it. We need an analysis that actually looks at social power and privilege. And uh, while looking at those correlations with identity does not get caught up in those correlations because then it simply becomes my group versus your group for a share of the pie. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that kind of, that kind of infighting between people who don't have a share of the pie doesn't give anybody a bigger share of the pie. Right. It, uh, in fact, you know, serves the interests of those who are got pies galore. This is when I come back to in when I think about queer and queerness, my uh, love hate 
love-dislike relationship with all of the labels. Mm-hmm. Because for myself, perhaps for yourself, we can understand, ah, okay, I get, I get it. I get why somebody wants to be called non-binary. I understand why somebody wants to be uh, called trans or whatever, because they're finally being able to accept who they are. But I suppose when there's a, a movement towards how that becomes such an imperative mm-hmm. in the direction of one's life, that causes a lot of discomfort in a lot of other individuals, for example, these right-wing groups. And um, you and I had prepared, had a discussion before this, and I wrote down something you had said. Uh, So I'm just paraphrasing because I think it's a perfect point here. So you said, change doesn't always happen without discomfort. If you're not resilient, you risk becoming fragile. You're not always right and need to recognize that truth with humility. So my question here is, how do we facilitate uncomfortable conversations, especially around things like identity and class? You need, well, I mean, I, for 20 years, I did those kinds of facilitating yes. discussions, right? <laughs> and so there are like particular kinds of techniques. You try to start to get people to talk about their, um, their personal experiences, uh, you set up a framework where people who might normally be discouraged from talking about those experiences to talk about them. You listen to what people are saying and see about making connections rather than telling them they're saying the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you let a process in, uh, evolve. I mean, I can think of, <clears throat> I can think of like a, a particular situation. It was at one of these kind of anti-racism camps. Mm-hmm. And uh, the groups were a, a mixed group, and the a bunch of young black uh, kids were talking about their relationships with the police because mm-hmm. uh, most of them were living in Regent Park. And there was this one white kid in the group I could tell was just sort of sitting there, and he was getting more and more tense, and you could see he was getting redder, and he was getting more and more angry. And so, <clears throat> brought him in and. Like, so what's going on? And he kind of exploded and said, you know, like, what am I? I live in Regent Park, too. The police hassle me all the time. But I'm not black, so I've got nothing to say. Mm. Right? Mm -hmm. Right? You guys can, you know, when they hassle you, you can always scream. You can always say racism and, you know, people will come to your defense. Like, when I do it, it's like, I'm I'm white trash. Nobody listens to me. Right? Right. So, like, that's a real experience this guy had. Right? But instead of saying, okay, like, there's a real similarity here between what's happening to the white kids and what's happening to you, or the black kids and what's happening to you, like, why do you think, you know, this isn't happening to the kid from Forest Hill, right? Mm-hmm. And so we we're able to begin to talk about questions of poverty and questions of the part of town you lived in and all of those kinds of things. And so he could begin to understand the commonalities that he was sharing with the black kids rather than seeing them, they, they've got a... They can describe this, whereas I'm not allowed to. Right. Uh, and you've got to work like that, right? Uh, listening to what people are saying and making those kinds of connections. And that yeah. takes time. And, it, you know, you, it's hard to do. You can't do it from a loudspeaker. They've got to be yeah. kind of smallish groups of people who are actually talking to each other as, as individuals and who can express their discomfort. Um, I mean, the discomfort he went through, I think, ended up, helping him 
understand stuff. Yeah. Right. And if, if he'd never gone through it, then he wouldn't have gotten anywhere. Um, so you know, facilitation is a, is kind of like walking a tightrope. You've got to, you've got to look for your balance all the time. Now, how one does that on a social scale in those kinds of programs that I ran in the board of education were like wiped out by neoliberalism, right? They mm-hmm. got rid of all that kind of stuff, right? Cause that was a frittle. You didn't need that. We needed to get back to, you know, ABC and, and arithmetic. Um, you know, how one does that in the absence of a, a social organization that, that is actually fighting for on a broad, in a broad way, a much more fair and equal and just society is becomes mm-hmm. becomes really hard, right? Because it's much much easier to kind of rally your own group um, and uh, work for yourself rather than working for everybody. There's um, I made note of a few things you wrote. This really connects with what we just talked about here. Uh, what what you said at the beginning, uh, some things you wrote that were quite prof- prophetic. Um, so you write, neoliberalism has also changed social values. Unmoored from any notion of social good, the liberal values we promoted in our struggle against tradition have been transformed into something resembling a destructive psychosis. Individualism justifies unlimited greed and selfishness when rationalism is stripped of empathy Success can only be measured by dollars accumulated despite its destruction of people and the planet. This shift in values affects us all. I've, I've not been quite so eloquent, but I've just said, you know, capitalism treats people like widgets. That's the Twitter version, right? <laughs> yes. But I, but I think what that says, at least for me, that speaks a lot to this experience of this white trash uh, individual who is within the container of um, class, economic class. Um, the intersection of race was also there, but it was far more a problem of, you know, not having money. And then feeling so much more disenfranchised, he would have been a prime candidate for like a neo-Nazi group. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And and why? Because you know, he felt completely disenfranchised. He didn't get protection. He didn't have money. So there's no empathy. There's like this lack of compassion. You know, I know that's the first place to come from, but it's often so hard when people are fighting to pull them in from all the different places and and say we actually do have something that we can come together on. And that was something you point out a number of times in the books and you discuss the difference between horizontal and vertical alliances, for example. Yeah. Yeah. Horizontal alliances being alliances with other people who are, were getting the, the short end of the stick. Yeah. Uh, for example, when the right to privacy was organizing, <clears throat> we took great pains to include in the demonstrations people from the black community and the South Asian community who are also facing police harassment all the time. That's a horizontal mm-hmm. kind of thing. Right? Uh, vertical, uh, vertical connections are when you begin to talk to people in power and ask them to, to be nicer to you or pressure them to be nicer to you. Right. But yeah. like, but your, your focus is up and your focus then is you getting up there with them. Uh, 
and that that debate has been a debate from the very beginning of the of the gay movement uh, in Toronto. The, in the, there were the kind of the radicals around the break to pri- around uh, the body politic and around the gay alliance towards equality. Mm-hmm. And then there were the people in CHAT, the, the Community Homophile Association, and they did education, but they wanted they didn't like confrontation, they didn't like demonstrations, they wanted to like talk to people in power and you know, make them understand that we were just like them and all of this kind of stuff. And the radicals said, like, that's bullshit. You know, these are the people that oppress us. We need to connect with the people who are also oppressed because we need to, like, change the whole society rather than having ourselves included in it. In the end, um, I mean, there's a lot of back and forth, but in the end, that strategy of inclusion was the one that that prevailed, right? We ended up, we ended up uh, even things like, spousal benefits and uh and marriage you know if you want you know if you see that as progress um those were won in the courts by lawyers right i mean there was the big push to get the barbary government in ontario to include spousal benefits and like mobilization and all this kind of stuff and they they flunked out they didn't pass it they screwed up and so Mm -hmm. 10 years later we won it in the courts but it was won by people who were lawyers and people who could afford to pay for lawyers. Yes. Right. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't won through like masses of people going into the streets and, and doing the kind of work that we had done in the original, in the original period. So there's always been a tension between those two things. Now that said, that's not to say that talking to people in power is always wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, the AIDS crisis is, I think, another example where the timelines for what you needed to be done were very, very short. Like, like how fast, how long am I going to live kind of thing, right? Yeah, yeah. A week, a month, a year. Um, <clears throat> and so, you know, you couldn't say, well, we've got to, we've got to end capitalism before we end AIDS, because if that was our strategy, we were all dead, right? Because capitalism wasn't going anywhere fast right maybe in the long run you know a more just society but in the in the short run you know we needed drugs and bodies now and so you needed to be able to negotiate with pharma and government and all sorts of people like money for research all that kind of stuff had to be in place so there is there are times uh, depending on particular kind of struggles when uh, vertical um, pressure or vertical conversations are important, um, but I would always say that you're stronger in those conversations if you have managed to develop the horizontal alliances and so that they know that they have to listen to you. Otherwise, things are going to be dicey. There's, um, oh, I forget who it was exactly. You um, quoted someone in the book who wrote, Sometimes in trying to say what is most fine about us as in the lesbian and gay community, um, this I think would have been written in the 80s. Sometimes in trying to say what is most fine about us, we borrow from the wrong terrain. We as lesbians and gays need to turn over these terms. We need to fight against the culture rather than fight for inclusion. And I think that at the time was a response to or a reaction to, uh, you know, the right to marry uh, because it then supports an institution that has excluded or had excluded us uh, on so many levels uh, for such a a long time. But that quote also made me think of 
some of the other challenges you brought up in your relationships with um, uh, South Africa and the the advocacy group out of South Africa, and and the challenge of assuming LGBTQ rights and the desire for it and the environment in which you understand it is the same in another country. Mm-hmm. So it might seem like I'm talking about two different things, but I think it's I think that one quote speaks to the other, and this challenge, like for example, I believe Uganda is still a place where I don't think you can be killed for being gay, but I think you'll still be put in jail. Mm-hmm. Um, and what are some of the challenges then? These 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 tensions in how we come from our worldview in Toronto, Ontario, Canada to another worldview. Yeah. So the quote that you, you said was from Dion Brand, uh, okay. who is uh, for a while Toronto's poet laureate, I think, mm-hmm. uh, black author, um, written many things, been around for years. Uh, and like one of the first, I guess, to begin to make that critique, like what's going on here? <laughs> there's, something, there's something wrong here, right? And so that's, I think that was made at the in connection with the, um, the gay Olympics, whatever they call it, the gay games, it was in Vancouver in the nineties, the early nineties. So, so yeah. So, I mean, she she is, she's questioning the, the role that we're taking here or the kind of the, the values that we're promoting here, what we're trying to gain here. The other question that you raised is what is our relationship to people in other countries that don't have a kind of a, a liberal democratic framework in which to work, right? Russia, for example, now, or uh, Uganda, which you mentioned, or Saudi, or, uh, you know, a number of countries. Um, And that becomes really problematic, especially when those are countries who have been in colonial relationships with, uh, with countries such as our own that have, you know, that, that probably have this democratic, Relation, uh, kind of framework, largely because we've been wealthy enough, thanks to the stuff that we sucked off, sucked out of uh, of those of those other countries, right? Um, so it be, it becomes problematic because when you begin to try to intervene and push for queer rights there. Um, you can be seen as just another colonialist coming and telling people what they have to do. Now, I think, I don't think that that's a legitimate argument, even though certainly, um, some of that does actually happen and it can have really bad, um, really bad outcomes. For example, I'm thinking of, I remember visiting the big lesbian and gay center in Kenya, which is very impressive in, in Nairobi. But all of their funding comes from uh, the Netherlands and other places in the European Union. And the problem is that the funders have changed priorities over the years. So like one year, it's like, this is your stuff. And so the money is available for that. So then the organizations in the developing world scramble for this money and like try to, you know, figure out how their program is going to be able to get this money. And they sort of start developing something. And then the funder changes focus. And the next year you're doing another scramble, right? And so that the the actual agenda is not being set in terms of what's needed in Kenya. 
the actual agenda is being set elsewhere. And so, and Kenyans are trying to like scramble to like, to to figure out how they can do something that's useful for themselves, given this other agenda. Right. Um, So that's, I mean, that is the problem with it. The other problem though, with the argument about, Oh, this is just colonial meddling is that uh, in many of these countries, same-sex activity in different contexts, you know, always, always happened. It always flew below the radar and everybody, like nobody kind of got upset about it until somebody from the outside sort of telling you what to do. And Uganda is like a, the best of cases because, you know, the, the laws in Uganda and Kenya and all the former British colonies, including Canada, uh, originated in Britain. So all this homophobic, these homophobic laws that people are now defending as tradition in these countries, in fact, are not their tradition. They are also a colonial import, right? So it becomes it becomes complicated. How do you actually support people there? How do you manage to maintain their control and leadership when the power imbalances between you with all the money and them without are really really strong in the Simon as a story in the in the book about Simon Cody anti-apartheid committee so Simon is a um, South African anti-apartheid activist he's gay he's in prison um, for treason because he's doing anti-apartheid work possible death penalty and he comes out in prison and so begins to like talk about gay stuff with the other prisoners right of course causes a bit of a, a connection anyway we're we're supporting Simon, and at one point, we sent him a picture of the group we were marching in International Women's Day. It was a very cold one. And so everybody's in like, big coats and things, and he wrote back. Remember, these days it's snail mail, right? So this takes like a month for things to go back and forth, especially when you're writing somebody in prison. And he said, what I really need is a warm coat because there's no heat in this prison. And it's really fucking cold in here. And so our committee that's doing all this solidarity work is like, oh, what are we supposed to do? Are we raising money for charity to give people coats? Quotes? Um, is this is is this international solidarity? We were like we were like really torn because we were wanting to do the you know put pressure on the South African gay organization to support Simon and in the International Gay Association to do all this kind of stuff internationally and I want a coat, right? That's his need. And so we began to realize that, you know, we were, do, we were pursuing our agenda, um, but that wasn't exactly what he most materially needed at that point, right? So we didn't send him a coat. We sent him money to buy a coat in South Africa, right? Uh, because that's what he said he needed. And I think that when we're doing that kind of solidarity work, it's re- it can be really tricky because it's often you get you get wound up in what you're trying to do and you sometimes end up doing things that on behalf of other people that yeah, isn't maybe what they are most needing at that particular point. I, another t- short, uh, thought experiment that I use for <laughs> more lefty meetings, I say, what would you suppose would have happened if in 1975 – the Central Committee of the Communist Party of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics had decided that gay people were oppressed in capitalist countries, and therefore they were going to start financing 
the gay right gay rights movement in Canada and the United States. How do you think that would have played out? Right? Wow. Would yeah. that have like strengthened our movement or would it have meant that in the middle of the Cold War we had all been in jail, right? Yes. <laughs> right. So like, think about that. But yeah. the other way around nowadays, right? Yeah. Uh, really complicated. International solidarity has always been complicated because there are these huge power imbalances and those aren't things you can just wish away. And sort of the standard answer is, well, you always have to take direction from the people in that country. Well, yeah, that's true. But on the other hand, thinking of that early movement in Canada, we didn't know what the fuck we were doing, right? <laughs> you know, and there were all sorts of disagreements, right? I mean, how would somebody from the outside decide, right? And if they are making that decision between very different strategies that are being proposed, then whose interest is that decision being made in? Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's that's, that's very helpful. That's the, the reframing of uh, Russia investing in gay rights uh, is is fascinating. I would would have never come up with that. Maybe what I'll do here is uh, sort of a few what seem like random questions, which will bring us towards the end. Um, you you mentioned this twice, uh, where you're quoting. Uh, someone at the height of the uh, AIDS epidemic who said AIDS is like a lens. When you look through it, you see all the problems of society magnified many times. Um, much of your work has been around um, HIV AIDS action. Maybe speak to that moment in time. Yeah. Well, I, I, he was, he was brilliant. He was a, he was a hustler in, in Montreal and I had been sent to Montreal to plan for causing eruption at the International AIDS Conference that was happening in the spring of uh, 89. And so I went to Montreal to try to find out who on the ground I could you know, begin to support with. And all the AIDS service organizations were like, no, we don't want to cause any trouble, right? Somebody gave me this guy's name who'd been working as a kind of a patient advocate just on his own, right? And he was like, you know... Not well educated, not well all of these kinds of things. He was like make, making his uh, making his living through sex work and but doing all this work on, on behalf. But he had this like insight, right? He like he actually he said something that all the people in the AIDS service organizations and in all the organizations that were supposed to be dealing with AIDS had never actually said in such a incisive way. So uh, you know, I thought he was I thought he was quite brilliant, and in in retrospect, we managed to, I would say, deal with half the problem of AIDS because the one problem, the major problem was getting drugs into people's bodies. Absolutely. Right. Because we were, until that happened, we were going to die. And, you know, of the people, the people who found that AIDS action now, the positive people, I'm the only one that survived to this point. Right. Um, but the other problem is, those broader social problems of inequality. And so we've got these drugs now, but people are still dying because they can't get them. And Simon died because he couldn't get proper therapy, right? Simon Cody. Um, so the lens showed us where those problems were. And we managed to like, we managed to find a solution that was good for people like me who have access to drugs um, but it didn't solve the problem for 
people in the rest of the world. And so there have been attempts, like there's this, you know, international consortium on, you know, dealing with AIDS and malaria and stuff, and they have managed to roll out uh, a lot of drugs. But the, the, you know, the therapies that are available in the developing world are not top of the line stuff here. I mean, they're, they're not bad. They're better than, better than nothing. And people, there are still many people that simply do not have access because of the huge inequalities that exist not only between us and those parts of the world, but even within those parts of the world, right? Because I think if you're uh, kind of a middle-class person in South Africa, you probably have better access to treatments and, and medical care than you are if you're like dead poor. Um, so, so that if we actually want to stop the, the suffering and the death, we needed to look much beyond simply getting molecules into people's bodies and think about what are those broader social factors that deprive people of even the most basic healthcare in large parts of the world when, I mean, there's no excuse for that in this day and age, right? We've got, you know, we've got plenty of, of resources to go around and to give everyone a decent standard of living, but that's simply not happening. And so we've got some parts of the world that are enormously rich grossly rich grotesquely rich and other parts of the world that are grotesquely poor and that has health outcomes so <laughs> i'll ask you this question but you could choose to answer democratically <laughs> or you could express an opinion uh well you write a lot about the experiences of toronto police and early on how they were literally a fascist organization especially with how they treated um you know uh, gays and lesbians and black people um you know toronto pride has had an on again off again relationship with them for various reasons um we still don't know if they were sort of invited back in under pressure of funding but we're finally going to have pride in Toronto after two years because of COVID. What are your thoughts on the participation of Toronto police at pride? I think the police have a responsibility to keep people safe. And in terms of every, they do in terms of every big festival, right? Um, they need to be very careful how they do that. But in terms of whether we want organized armed police marching in the parade, no, this is a community festival. You know, if there are queer police that want to make a little queer police contingent, want to come out and do that, right? More power to them. Um, but I can remember in like 2015 or so, I, I went down to the parade and it was like, you know, I was I was appalled, right? Because what used to be this community activity, there was this phalanx after phalanx of these uniformed officers from like, not just Toronto, but Peel and like, they seem to have like, dragged half the police in Ontario to march in this parade. It looked like a military parade. Yeah. And it was like, what, you know, that's a, it's kind of offensive to me, right? And I can only imagine what it would feel like to, you know, to younger people or, 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 or racialized people that, you know, have to live in terror of these guys. Yeah. Uh, so, no, I... I uh, I think that uh, the Black Lives Matter demand was a very important one and that uh, Pride has been quite right to keep organized police out of the parade. Um, uh, that, you know, doesn't mean that, uh, you know, 
all the police are homophobic or racist or anything, right? If, if as I say, if some if, if queer police uh, want to march in in the parade, then of course that's fine. But you know, they they don't they don't do it on police budget time because all those all those people that are marching down the parade, they're considered being doing service. They're paid for it. Oh, right? they're not there for solidarity, right? They're there yeah, because yeah. they've been ordered to. And uh, you know, we don't need that, right? We really yeah. don't need that. I want to quote the one of the paragraphs in the beginning of the conclusion, looking back, looking forward. Uh, and given the timeline of the book, you write a half century later, the more normative among us are embraced by the nation and are expected to embrace it in turn. We have become ordinary. We are no longer dangerous, nor long, nor do we carry the germ of a utopian future. We are the mundane present. <laughs> There's a lot in. I get carried away with myself sometimes. I must. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can hear the. I, I can hear the, the 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 potential expressions in the background. What what. <laughs> It's it struck me as being kind of a little hard on the one end, but I also get it. Mm. Like, what is mundane? What is ordinary? That that sort of touches on this idea of so many identities, mm. and whether that's a, a good thing for the awareness and the creation of inclusion and diversity and equity. But you know, <laughs> when do we remain? Uh, like what's the expression a mosaic as mm. a community as opposed to a melting pot mm -hmm. and how do we this is a balancing act there is no uniformity no and i think that is probably the biggest mistake that that when people get very angry and want to uh fight perhaps from a a, a religious right standpoint, for example, they think, they assume it has to be uniform. Mm -hmm. And yet there's a danger <laughs> in wanting to become too uniform. Yeah, I think what I was saying, I mean, what motivated us to push for liberation and then rights and to push for changes in society was being on the outside, right? Not being part of it. And being on the outside meant that we could look from the outside in and see like, that's pretty screwed up. Right. Um, yeah. you know, cause it's not just us. There's like a whole bunch of stuff. So remember that gay liberation was at a time when national liberation struggles were fighting colonialism in different parts of the world. Women's liberation was fighting sexism. Uh, black liberation Panthers were fighting racism. There was Chicano liberation. There was, uh, you know, our indigenous groups were, were organizing. And so it was almost as if there was a division of labor. There were all of these groups that were pushing for these fundamental changes. And, uh, you know, women had the sexism part, black people had the racism part, we had the sex part, right? <laughs> and so that was going to be our contribution. Um, but instead, uh, some of us managed to settle down and get the sex part within the uh, paradigm of married monogamy, people with their husbands and stuff. Um, whereas most of those other groups are still down there fighting. Right. And so 
I guess the the point about about some of us becoming kind of mundane and ordinary is that once we get on the inside, like everybody else, we become as blasé as all those other people who can't see what's happening to others because you know we've got blinders on. I mean, I yeah. I mean, I, I, working at the, I find it in myself still. I mean, I've done all this anti-racist work, and. I'm still surprised when I hear about egregious examples of racism. I think, really? That happens? You know? And then I think, yeah, of course, it happens all the time. You know that it happens all the time. But since it never happens to me, right. I forget. You always forget. I mean, we, we, we learn and we forget. And unless it's reinforced by daily experience, um, you know, learning is a, you know, it's a learning curve. and declining it goes up and down so it's these social divisions a and the fact that some of us are included that has meant that for a lot more of us um we're no longer on the outside therefore we no longer see social change as fundamental or necessary no longer have a stake in that a, you know a dog in that race and therefore you know we don't we don't mobilize ourselves. We don't feel it as vis- viscerally as uh, as we once did. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, then the, the last question I have for you is: What are you most proud of as a personal triumph or accomplishment um, mm. that you've done that you talk about? I, I, I think the one that I said it was in terms of AIDS uh, mm-hmm. was the Trillium Drug Program. Mm-hmm. Um, when we started out. The first fight around AIDS was like uh, like legal access to experimental treatments, and then came um, kind of access to information about those kinds of things because you didn't know about them, you couldn't fight for them, and then um, there was um, access to ethical clinical trials, so you wouldn't be forced into trials to try to get treatments and stuff. They used to do that to us, and then finally it became a question of financial as- um, access. In those early days, there was no there was no program. Uh, if you if you were on welfare, you got a drug card, and your drugs were covered. But if you weren't, then you had to pay for them, unless you had private insurance. Right? Unless you had. And, and just to, just to interject, I mean, the the prices haven't come down that much. But I remember this would be in like late eighties, early nineties. You could be twenty five hundred dollars Canadian a month, oh, yeah. and then. You know, a, a friend of mine had, um, or, or got, how do you, was infected with a very rare strain and was put on a trial drug that thankfully was funded, but it was $10,000 a month. Yeah. And he was given permission to take that for a year. Yeah. So, I mean, that was a situation that a whole lot of people in the gay community, gay male community, you know, like stereotypical, like the waiters and the actors and the hairdressers, those people don't have drug plans at work. Of course not, mm-hmm. right? And so people would be put in the position of, I need drugs to be able to keep healthy enough to work, but I have to quit work and get rid of all my all my um, my savings so that I qualify for welfare so I can get a drug card. Then I get a drug card so I can get my drugs, but of course I can't afford an apartment anymore and I can't afford proper nutrition, right? Because the welfare rates are so low. And so... I mean, that was, I think, the point that AIDS Action Now said what we need to have is a what we call 
as was a catastrophic drug policy, uh, which meant that anyone in the province whose drug costs exceeded a certain percentage of their income would get a drug card. So nobody would have to either impoverish themselves in order to get medications or die because they weren't willing to impoverish themselves, right? Uh, and uh, we fought the Ray government on that. I mean, they supposedly were in favor of this, but, you know, the Ray government was disappointing, to say the least. Um, and we harassed them and harassed them and, like, disrupted meetings and, you know, it went on and on and on for four years. And finally, at the very last, I guess, when they felt they had nothing to lose, um, we had actually disrupted the NDP convention. I think it was in Hamilton. And Ray took a number of the activists behind and said, what do you want? And we said, like, what do you, what do you mean, what do we want? We've been telling you for the last four years what we want. And he said, okay, I will see that it happens. And that was the one promise he actually kept. So that was in the fall, and in April, the Trillium Drug Plan was put in. And the the beauty of the Trillium Drug Plan is that it's not just a program for people living with AIDS and HIV. Anybody whose drug costs go beyond a certain percentage of their income can apply for Trillium and get themselves covered. So it, it, it produced this huge change, change in, um, you know, health was not something that you only God, if you could buy it, health was, became something that you had a right to. And the Trillium program is not like perfect by any means. It can be kind of bureaucratic and slow and all of those kinds of things. But still, it's a huge advance. Uh, and we won that. I and mean, AIDS Action Now won that. Like nobody else was, was fighting for it. Um, you know, we had allies here and there. But uh, it was a conjuncture that we managed to manage and, uh, and win that program. So I think that, you know, that's the thing that I'm, probably most proud of not like i did it alone by any means yeah. but yeah. an organization that i was uh was part of was on the steering committee of and was committed to manage to produce a change in legislation that affected the health of everybody in this province amazing and that's a that's a massive contribution that wasn't just insular and you know hiv aids is not a gay disease it affects anyone who can come in contact with it but reading your book and knowing the history it it that's where the activism started from and it picked up people from other areas of life that were affected or infected um and decided to become part of that necessary change yeah it was a role yeah yeah <laughs> what's next for you <laughs> well i don't know i'm getting old you know um yeah, I'm still kind of peripherally involved in the kind of no pride in policing thing. Uh, just, you know, was maintaining the pressure on pride not to uh, not to let the police back in pride. Um, I don't know exactly. I'm kind of between, between spaces right now. I mean, I found that um, organizations have come to me <laughs> or, or like, what would you say it? Like the situations have emerged in which I feel that I have to be involved in, um, you know, the body politic from the, from the beginning, I mean, that was a good fit, but then the right to privacy, the bath rates happened and the right to privacy happened. And then the, the South African apartheid stuff happened and, uh, then AIDS happened. Right. So I don't know, I guess I'll sort of wait and see what happens next. Right. 
and to see where is the most um, effective place that I can put uh, what energies I've got as an old gay dinosaur at this point. Well, I'm glad you're around as an old gay dinosaur. I know a few of them. <laughs> and if it wasn't for individuals like yourself, we wouldn't have uh, these profound histories and in the sense of um, very good reflections. Everyone has a bias. That's fine. But, you know, I think it is so vital now more than ever in this information age that we have the sources we can go to and say, well, here's actually what happened. And here's why it's important to remember, to acknowledge. Um, it might not be that you can copy what was done because it was 20, 30, 40 years ago, but there could be something in there um, that inspires or gives a new idea or something that has been forgotten that could be useful today. Hope so. I mean, that's why, I, well, as I said, I produced the book trying to clarify myself uh, what the fuck had just happened, but also because um, there didn't seem to be at that point a kind of a, a visceral history of what had happened in Toronto. And I thought it was like an important story that uh, hopefully people will uh, will learn from and, you know, maybe make maybe not make all the mistakes that we made or, you know, you know, find it, find it as useful somehow. I think it's, I find it's also useful when I talk about it to younger people, because as you say, the world is so individualist now. I had one young man said, you know, he's, he came here um, from the Middle East and uh, he said, you know, he, he goes to the baths and stuff like that. And, you know, he, he really appreciates the kind of uh, freedoms and things that he has here that he doesn't have, he didn't have back home. But he said, until I started reading this book, I never really felt that I was part of an historical community. Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, that isn't anything kind of concrete, but I think it will, it will be something that will help shape his activism as his life goes on. Because if he suddenly realizes that he, even though this community seems to be kind of fragmented at this point and like what, what is to be done is not at all clear that to actually feel you're part of this historical trajectory or community um, will put him in a place where he'll find, he'll find what needs to be done and he'll find his place in it. Wonderful. That's a great place to end. Tim McCaskill, thank you so much. I really appreciate the time you've taken with me in preparation and today for the recording of this episode. Thank, thank you, Darren. It's been, it's been fun. It's been great. I always like to, you know, I always like to talk about the old times. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye.